This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hi, this is Bruce Daisley, Eat Sleep Work Repeat, back again like a renegade master. I've always looked at the boat race with so many questions, and the main question is, how does this count as a TV show? But even though the boat race definitely isn't my idea of diversity, it's certainly a test case of performance under pressure. Today's guest, Mark Durand, is an expert in teams who thrive in those conditions. He spent his life embedded with teams like military hospitals in Camp Bastion with the boat race crew. And the boat race is definitely an example of a team that is win at all costs. 37 on the finish. Ready. Go. Squeeze there. Squeeze there. Squeeze there. Think of the rhythm now. Cambridge rhythm. We're sitting two seats down and we're right on it. That's 36. So that's what we've got lined up for you today. An exploration of teams that thrive in those conditions. Just a reminder, all of the episodes are live on our website, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. Of course, the most elegant way to stay connected is by subscribing on iTunes. And interestingly, about 75% of all podcast listens come from iTunes. That's interesting, isn't it? Why don't those Android people care? Of course, that's not just my podcast. A few shout outs before we start. Shout out to Emma Hopkins. Hoppo redid my logo this week. It's looking lovely, isn't it? In your podcast player of choice. Mine is iTunes, of course. The choice of 75% of all podcast listeners. Apple ask us to remind you of that. Hoppo does, uh, Hoppo in her spare time, does half of those filters you see on Snapchat. That's a good job, isn't it? I love the idea of her trying to describe that job to her gran at Christmas. Also, immense thanks to Neil Claxton. Neil's one of the audio experts who got in touch with me in various states of despair, asking what the hell I'm doing to record these things. He made today's interview sound about 200 times better. Should have heard it before. It sounded like a sort of pocket dial of an argument on a bus. So, well done, Neil. You're a good man. I'm taking next week off, but uh, the week after, we're going to return and we've got some fantastic podcasts lined up. We've got Rory Sutherland. We've got the creator of Results Only Work Environments, Jodie Thompson. You haven't heard her yet, but that's magnificent. Tony Schwartz is going to be talking about the way we're working isn't working. Dan Pink will be talking about the things that motivate us in life. I've got a series of of businesses who are going to give us their tips. Not least amongst them is the founder of Ceviche, Martin Morales. So lots and lots more there. Now, obviously, work culture plays out through teams. And a colleague put me on to today's guest. Stay tuned to the end of the show if you're interested in helping, because Mark Durand, our guest today, is looking for a new project. Personally, I suggested to him he should go inside the writing room of a TV show. So maybe if you could hook him up with a successful writing room, he'd be interested in that. But you might just have a project where you've got an example of a team who works under pressure and you're inspired by Mark's work. If you have got an idea, do connect us because Mark's keen to hear more. So Mark works at the Judge Business School at Cambridge University and he's a lecturer, he's an author, but he principally describes himself as an ethnographer. And I said to him, what's that again? Probably the oldest 
One of the oldest ways, or the most certainly most old-fashioned way, of studying people um, by living with them full time. That's what ethnographers do, right? So, um, so that's what I do. So I, I study people by living with them full time for pretty long periods of time, often under very similar conditions that they do. Um, the downside is that I work with samples of one, which means I can't generalize from them. Uh, the upside is that you get to see a level of granularity of detail that you don't normally see, um, and that's very addictive. Yeah, so I'd never go back into anything else. So let's go through a couple of your teams that you've been embedded with. So you, and is it always the study of teams, or is it? A- um, it's always been the study of people working together, right. usually in difficult circumstances, right? So the work with the sports teams was interesting because they work in a very competitive environment. You've got forty rowers all competing for only eight seats in the boat. The work in the Amazon was interesting because the risk of piracy is very high, and so there's a real uh, yeah risk to life in- involved. Um, Work that I've done with comedians, improv comedians, is interesting because they go through these long spells without sleeping. Um, and so it allows you to study how yeah, how teams work together, how people collaborate in uh, when they get very tired. Um, work with military surgeons is interesting because um, they are thrown in an environment which is at once emotionally difficult, um, you know, and, and just generally have very, very high pressure. So the common denominator in all my work is that I look at people working together mostly as teams, it doesn't have to be the case, but in difficult circumstances. So what happens when you get into a difficult place and you have no option but to succeed by collaborating or coordinating uh, with people very much like yourself? So let's look at one of those teams. So like the, you wrote a fascinating book about the Cambridge Boat Race and the, the Cambridge Boat Race team. And I think, you know, the, there's a number of things that really stand out from it. But probably the first one that was most intriguing from an outsider's perspective is the fact that, I mean, you start off with as many as 40 people, yeah. um, but you get down to eight. But those eight are not the fastest eight rowers, are they? Not necessarily. And that makes coaching difficult, right? How do you select from 40 people? How do you select the right combination of eight people? that will collectively make for a very fast boat. And it sometimes involves a trade-off between technical competence and social competence, right? So in a 2007 crew, for example, um, we had someone who everyone knew not to be the best horseman. I mean, the performance data showed it, right? So we seed row people, we we put them on on row machines. You kind of know how powerful they are and how effective they are in a crew. And yet the five of the returning blues who'd rowed a year before had again been selected, fought to have him in the boat. And the argument was that he may not be the best rower, but there's something about him that allows us to, to dig deeper, be more effective collectively, right? And so the coach at the time had to do something quite difficult, which is to move someone out who's actually objectively more skilled and stronger and to move someone in place who by any objective standard wouldn't be. The explanation they gave in part was, well, there's something about him that allows us to tackle conflict more effectively or um, it kind of helps take the rough edges off of some of the, you know, some of the people we have in the boat. Um, that boat was um, was very stacked. You know, we had an Olympic gold medalist. So we went on to win two Olympic gold medals. We had two reigning uh, world champions. And so so they're good people, but, you know, again, what makes them good makes them difficult, which is true of, of many walks of life, right? There's an interesting insight through that. I mean, you use the word exploitative at, at one stage that, you know, you um, these people playing mind games with each other, right? That, you know, people are trying to demonstrate to the coaches, to the selectors that they're better, but they're not trying to let on to the other potential teammates that they're working hard or they're doing these things. What what comes out of the boat race is that this this teamwork seems to be a weird combination. It's a reminder of what happens. A combination between competition and collaboration. Absolutely. And you know what? Rowing has systematised that, right? So um, in order for you as a rower to look good in front of the coaches and to optimise your chance of selection, you effectively in the boat have to create a space where everyone around you can be the best they can be. Now, the irony is that sometimes the people that you 
you need to make as good as they can be are the very same people you're competing with for a seat in the boat, right? And that, that generates a level of paranoia, which is in some ways quite unique, but very powerful. And so it's no surprise that people play games, you know. Um, these are smart, calculating individuals. They have a pretty rough ride of it, right? Um, so it's been systematized in, in, in rowing. And it, it, it's, uh, again, it, it's, it's, it generates a great deal of discomfort, but actually it's a very, very good way of selecting out people that, uh, and how people function in a, in a real in a real crew, right? You mentioned in your writing that often sport is like this easy metaphor, isn't it? It's like, and, and you mentioned it's often sort of a lazy metaphor. Th- these things you talk about here, do you think they are directly applicable to the, the, the world of work? I mean, because competition between members of, an, a, of a company might exist, but it's always so hidden under the surface. Do you think sport just magnifies what exists in other environments? I think that's, I think that's partly what sports does, right? So I think the sort of tensions you see um, within sports, particularly the ones that you refer to right now, between competition and cooperation, you also see working life, but they're much more subtle. It doesn't mean they're not important. We need to be careful, though, because sports has, has at least two features that you, that you don't always find in working life. One is that in sports, particularly elite sports, you can cherry pick in a way you can't work in a working environment, right? Quite often working environment, the people we work with, even the teams we lead, are people that we inherit. Also in sports, sports has a rhythm to life that you have echoes of in the working world. But in sports, you know, you typically have one event a year, one event every four years or something like it that you can work towards. And in working life, though there might be rhythms in terms of quarters going by and, and so on, it doesn't necessarily have the clarity of, of purpose, right? And that kind of has never really ceased to surprise me. So we go to organizations that should know what they're about, actually performing quite well. When you ask people to talk about what they think they are here to do as an organization, the discussion that ensues can be very, very powerful. It's something people often like to talk about, but whereas you might expect a real sense of clarity you know, from some of the organizations, certainly that I've worked with, um, that often doesn't exist. You know? And it's particularly true of, of, of diversified firms um it's a it's a great way of sucking energy into the room right just get people to sit down and say okay you know what do you think we're here to do and why you know god forbid if we were to be stripped out of the world tonight you know who care you know ask lawyers this <laughs> you, know, you know it's it's not easy to answer questions questions like it there's a there's a wonderful example of this in rowing right so in cambridge we have something called the stevens question now rowing is binary like many sports you win or you lose and the boat club in Cambridge is absolutely clear upon it, upon its its purpose, which is to beat auction in a boat race. No matter how many races you win, if you lose the boat race, the year is a waste of time. No matter how many races you lose, that's okay, as long as you win the boat race. Right? And because the world is binary, they can get away with a single criterion they use to make decisions called the Stevens question. You know, and the question is, will me doing this today, will us doing this today help us win the boat race, yes or no? If the answer is yes, you do it. If the answer is no, you don't do it. It's hands off. Now, the question has had an interesting life, so it has evolved, right? So the question you now hear more often is a question that, um, that uh, originated with the, 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 the Great Britain crew that won gold in Sydney in the, in the Olympics in 2000, which is, will me or you doing this today, will us doing this today, will it help make the boat go faster, yes or no? Now, for organizations, it's not easy to define the boat. The boat effectively is their purpose. What do you have to do? But once you get your head around what a boat is, what becomes interesting is to try and see if you can formulate for yourself something like Stephen's question equivalent. So for a law firm, you know, like Slaughter's in May or a you know, what would the equivalent be of, will us doing this make the boat go faster, yes or no? Now, we've had organizations here that have tried this out. Um, and what they find out is interesting. 
what matters is not really the question at the end, the equivalent of that Stevens question, but it's the process you begin. It's to get people to talk about purpose, what people are here to do. And that's, that question is often far more complex in uh, particularly in diversified organizations than we assume it to be, right? Uh, but it's something you've, you must get your head around. And so coming back to the difference between sports and, and the workplace, you know, there's some, some big differences, particularly along those two realms. But sport is nice, I think, particularly because it helps amplify some of the stuff that you either you see or you should see. In, in the workplace. Um, so we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think I'm arguing. I love those times in life where you, you find the curtain's been pulled back. And so the thing I loved was that you posted audio of the cocks and what the cocks were saying. And it's always one of those things, if you watch a, a race, you're thinking, what's the what's the person who's sitting there doing nothing saying? And and actually, it was it's fascinating to listen to it because it's it fully demystifies it. The cocks is largely injecting a bit of energy, come on, come on, occasionally doing a bit of pace. But it's, it's quite banal, isn't it? And, <laughs> and, I, and I was just interested... How, how important do you think that leader is in that environment? Oh, it can, it can be hugely important. So the example that I know best, right, um, in 2007 again, um, the, the Cambridge crew had a cox called Rebecca Daubing, and she made a number of calls during the race um, that in some ways became her legacy. Now, one of them will sound very banal or maybe even sound um, sort of patronizing, but somewhere midway through the race, as Cambridge is starting to gain in Oxford, she says, good boys good boys, right? And we talk to the rowers today, this is what they remember her for. Now, here's the story. She wasn't meant to be in a boat at all. In the boat was meant to be an American uh, called Russ Glenn, really nice guy. Um, the difficulty with Russ is that he was very, very aggressive and it would make the guys nervous. Now, boat, rowing, boat speed depends upon not just power, but it depends upon coordination, right? It's, it's really critical that you get a blade in at the same time the power on at the same time, the blade out at the same time, right? Um, even if you work harder on your own, when you lose coordination, you will slow that boat down. Okay. Now, it's very hard to coordinate when you get nervous. Now, the real difficulty is that though everyone knew he made him nervous, no one talked about this. Until 11 days for the boat race. They lost a fixture, a mock race against Molsey, um, and had a very bad time of it. And on the way back um, to where they were camping out, Two of the guys started to talk. What they talked about was their, their cock. Something wasn't right. Yeah, they couldn't find their rhythm in rowing. It made them nervous. And so they called a meeting that night, you know, without the cockers being present, and finally opened up and come to find out, without fail, everyone had felt very, very similarly about the coxswain. But they'd never shared these private reservations because the team spirit, the level of team spirit they felt was so, so fragile that no one wanted to stick out a neck and destroy whatever team spirit they'd spent so much time building up. And so they did something quite dramatic. They demoted him to the reserve crew and put her back in place. Now, he had already won the boat race twice with the reserve crew. There was, there was every chance he was going to be the coxswain. Rebecca had never coxed the boat race before on the Putney to Mord Lake stretch. But it was something she could do, he couldn't do, which is to keep them calm. Now, I know Rebecca quite well. At a point in the boat race where they are behind Oxford, because they had a bad start, she didn't know what to do. But the only thing she did know is that she needed to find some calls to keep their heads in the boat. would so need to be very, very technical and not let them worry about Oxford. And some calls that would give them something to feel good about, that would allow them to find, collectively to find their rhythm. And that's all she could think of. And so again, you know, when you talk to the guys today, it's the good boys call. Did they win? They did. Amazing, <laughs> right, okay. From behind, they won. <laughs> yes, the, the, the following year, the Oxford Coxon used it. Uh, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a guy. No, seriously. <laughs> as a guy, he used yeah. it. Yeah, it was very curious. Right, right? okay, did it work? So, uh, 
They did win, actually. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what we've learned it's, here. <laughs> no, I, I, it's not a call. You know, it's not a call that would have won in the race. The calls just symbolized what this fragile crew was about. It was a crew of very, very high-performing individuals, but socially fragile. Five of them rode a year before and lost the race, um, knowing they should have won. On paper, they're far stronger. They were very, very insecure. Um, lovely guys, very powerful, but socially not as cohesive as you might want to be. Yeah. So, so on to a different sort of team and, a, and one that I'm, I'm sure is, is far more co- cohesive. So you talked and you spent some time embedded in Camp Bastion in, in Afghanistan, which seems remarkable. I mean, the, the numbers that you talked about, you watched 174 casualties come in. Just one week. Yeah, six were dead on arrival. Then you watched 134 hours of operation. And it was interesting because when you were describing the scene and when you were describing your experience, what the team dynamic was like, I was trying to sort of visualise it. And you a word that was really surprising you said there was a sort of humor to their to their whole culture a dark humor but you just want to talk about what that team dynamic was like sure so the, the figures you just mentioned um those are relevant only to the first week i was there right okay. so i was there for six weeks and six weeks is a tour of duty typically for surgeons and anesthetists the use of humor in hospitals is is in some ways quite well-known, right? There's a well-known book called um, House of God, written under a pseudonym, I think in the 70s or 80s, which will be very well-known by medical trainees, right? Um, and what a book does, among other things, is just to give life to to the, the, the training of a doctor. And part of that is the is the exposure to humor. The humor is very dark, it's very black. And it's the kind of humor you would typically not share outside of a hospital. It's kind of an insider game you don't play or share with outsiders. And quite often the humor is at the expense of the people that in ordinary hospitals shouldn't have been there. They're, t- they're old and they're still alive and they shouldn't be, right? Or they're people that suffer from lifestyle diseases that could have been prevented had they taken better care of themselves. And in Cambastian, you might find humor like the target at Afghans who shot themselves in the foot, you know, to escape a dreadful situation or who accidentally shot each other, you know, something like that, right? Um, and it may seem grossly unfair, but I think it's just uh, one of the coping mechanisms they've inherited from the work back in the NHS that just allows them to kind of get on with the job. There's something that really did surprise me, though, about that tour of duty, and it's the following. Um, the people that deploy are generally very senior, so they're almost all consultants, um, and many of them will have deployed to war many, many times to some of the worst wars in the world. You know, think of Bosnia, for example. And so they should be pretty hard. And they're also pretty tough people, right? <clears throat> Often quite opinionated. It's especially true of the general surgeons. Now, general surgeons are in some ways quite old-fashioned. They take care of the thoracic area in the belly, which is all the big organs where the big vessels are. So they take risks that orthopedic surgeons or plastic surgeons, for example, wouldn't take. And so by self-selection, these are pretty tough people. Now, none of that matters when they get busy. So when they get busy around a casualty, you know, the teamwork you then see is second to none. It's absolutely stunning to watch. People just get on with the job and they're really effective. And of course, that's partly because because they've been well-trained, but it's also partly because the objective is so very, very clear. You know, someone will die if you don't do something very quickly. Now, the, the flip side of, of that is that it's it's sometimes very busy, but it's not always busy. And so sometimes days go by when very little happens. And of course, it leaves these 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 big personalities with nothing to do. And so what they do is they start to hope for new work to come in, but feel guilty about this because it means people must get injured for them to have something to do. They start to bring patients back into theater for non-emergence operations, which 
potentially put patients at risk. Um, they start to interfere with each other's work, which is a big no-no in medicine, something you just don't do. And, and this is interesting, they become existentially bored. Bored not just because they have nothing to do, but bored because they realize that too little of what they do to is meaningful for them. Right? So the Afghans, for example, by protocol, have to be passed on to local hospitals as soon as it's considered safe to do so. The doctors are, are well aware that their chances of recovery or or even survival, are often greatly compromised uh, in doing so. But they have relatively little choice in, in the matter. So they realize that, in fact, even when they're busy, not all of what they do is, is meaningful. And I think that has a very interesting translation to working life. You know, I do a lot of work with professional service firms. I get to work with people that are usually pretty smart and usually really, really busy. And so boredom in the ordinary sense is not really an issue. But most people, I dare say, are, at least for some of the time, existentially bored. The people like you and I that are, are bored because we realize that actually probably too little of what we do is meaningful for us. Now that's interesting because if that's true of you, it will be true of the people you lead. And it raises a very quite profound question, right? So what is going to be your role as someone leading a team in helping people work, work around or manage their existential boredom? as opposed to their workload in a general sense. Whenever I raise that issue, uh, and again, particularly with professional service firms, uh, but even with doctors, you know, it's something they absolutely recognize, right? Even doctors in the NHS, you know, people that we think, you know, we, we'd be envious of because after all, they've got skills that are second to none and, and they literally save lives. Quite often, they'll be complaining about the fact that too many of the people that they see suffer diseases that are preventable. And so, you know, you know, it, it's, um, yeah. So existential boredom, I think, is one of the curses of the workplace today, right? There's another observation that actually crosses both of the ethnographies you mentioned, so with the, the Cambridge rowers and with the surgeons, the military surgeons. And it actually is kind of a red thread for all the work that I've done, the field work with comedians and and uh, with life scientists um, from out on the Amazon. It's, it's the idea that, or the observation, I should say, that for all the good that teams bring to organizations, they are by and large not easy places to be, right? And I believe that's absolutely true. When you look at teams, even very high-performing teams, and you pop the hood and you look inside, what you see inside can often look quite messy, surprisingly messy. And the question that raises is, well, how come the functional so often feels dysfunctional? And a lot of my research for the past 15 years has been kind of around that. And the one that shouldn't surprise that things feel dysfunctional in teams because you're dealing with very high performers who bring to teams everything that's dysfunctional about them. Just like you and I do, you know, we bring to our teams, to our workplaces, our insecurities, our ambitions, our, our opinions, our likes, our dislikes, and so on. We also know that people that lead teams can make a really positive difference to the teams they lead. And so what I what I propose, or what I'd like to propose, and quite often do with the, um, the organizations I work with, is that you, know, you and I can make a positive difference to the people we lead by working a number of questions really well, right? And I think of these questions, there are probably about seven or so that I think are relevant to almost every team, no matter where they are, what they do, right? The way you work these questions with your team will depend upon who you have. It's a bit like having kids, right? So if you've got, you know, two kids, three kids, and kind of what works for one kid just kind of doesn't work for the other kid. That's, that's certainly the case in my family, right? But the big questions in life are always the same about universities, about boyfriends, girlfriends. And teams are like that. I think the big questions in team life are very, very similar. I think the way you, you handle them, you unpack them, you work them, will depend upon who you have, right? And these questions have to do with things like purpose, things like psychological safety. You know, how do you know people tell you what you need to know? And what could you do? Things like harmony, right? Or happiness in the workplace. You know, how is that related to performance? The assumption often being that the happier we are, the better we'll perform. Whereas in fact, if you look at the, the empirical evidence, it suggests something that's almost the opposite. You know, quite often when people feel in harmony, it's not a cause for performance, but a result of having performed. So the first responsibility of people like you and I is with performance as opposed to with happiness. Right? Questions of size, you know, how big is too big? Is there a sweet spot for teams? 
and what does that depend upon? You know, questions of how to deal with difficult people in teams, you know, people that you need, and you need them because they're good, but what makes them good makes them difficult. How do you, how do you exploit what's good and mitigate the risk of, yeah, of these very same behaviors? So I think these questions, again, as someone in leading a team, these are questions you will want to work, and there are ways of working them. And if you work them well, they'll be empowering. If you don't work them, they won't go away. They're endemic to life, to team life. And so that's kind of what my work is, has always been about. So teams, are, you know, teams can be very good, but I'm not sure they're very happy places for much of the time. It doesn't mean they're not effective. When they are effective and when they perform very well, at least temporarily, that it can create a really good sense of harmony and happiness, togetherness and identity and so on, um, which is most people want from life. You mentioned in one of the things, just on that point, that... Um, orchestras that are unhappy or orchestras that have got a, a, a an uncomfortable dynamic between them are actually regarded as better orchestras right is that, is that, is that, i've probably uh, not expressed uh, that properly but well actually it's not not bad right so there's a this is a piece of work done by the late richard hackman who was a psychologist at harvard and he's probably on teams one of the foremost scholars, right, um, until he died. And so he looked at uh, 78 symphony orchestras of four European countries some years ago. And one of the things that he observed is that uh, grumpy orchestras almost always outperform happy orchestras, right? So it's the grumpiness prize performance. Now, when you unpack the paper, you kind of understand where the grumpiness comes from. It's, it's kind of politically incorrect, right? Because the people were grumpy because the women were introduced to, <laughs> to symphony orchestras. You know, um, um, but, but but if you scratch away, you'll find a lot more research like it. And that research is interesting because what it suggests quite often is that we do often tend to think that harmony generates performance. And I'm sure there'll be some anecdotal evidence for that. But what a lot of the evidence suggests is, again, that if you get performance right, then not always, but more often than not, harmony will follow, Right. So harmony is an output, not a, Absolutely. a an objective. I think that's, right. that's right. So yeah. if you want harmony, your your shortcut to harmony is not a conversation. It's to get performance a bit right. Make sure that people know what they're here to do and how their performance will be measured. And ties in very nicely, actually, to some work done by a colleague at Harvard. Her name is uh, Teresa Mobilet. She's, um, she's really good at what she does. And, and so she did something very interesting. So she invited 238 people like you and me to keep a diary for th- um, three months. And in the diary, we would write about every day at the end of the day, now, no matter how busy the day had been, we'd say something about the day. Was it a good day or a bad day and why? You know, and what made us happy, what made us angry and so on. She ended up with just over 12,000 diary pages to find out at the end of the three-month period that there's one thing that motivates people like you and I more than anything else. It is our ability to make progress. Not just progress in general, but progress of something we think is important. I know you're interested in happy workplaces, right? I dare say that's what constitutes a happy workplace part is probably the ability of people in that workplace to be understood in terms of what they value, what they don't value, and to be allowed to make some progress towards something they themselves think is actually important. That, I think, breeds loyalty. And that, I think, is especially true of high performers. We just want to get better at something. In fact, a lot of, I think, the pleasure we get from life, you know, is is, is just the feeling of being productive. Now, you can be productive at work, but it's not always easy to measure. Um, sorry, productive at home. Productivity at work is a little bit easier to imagine and get a hold of. And that sense of making progress, to be productive, to do something actually that's valuable, maybe not in an ultimate sense, but at least in a way that you can get your head around how that might be measured, right? I think it's, it's actually probably quite important, right? And I, I, I just can't imagine not working, not because you kind of love working, but just because I think we all need to have a sense that we do something 
that's important and something that we can measure progress against, right? So the, pro- the progress off, I should say. Maybe one of the only final things I wanted to cover off was um, you talked about the humour in the environment mm. at, at uh, Camp Bastion. Was there a lot of humour in the boat race team? There was, actually. Um, so, so is humour, like harmony, just an output of a, of a successful team? It's easier. Um, it's probably easier to to engage in humor when people feel a bit more relaxed and they might do so, you know, once they've performed well. But it's also a very nice way to break tension, right? So I'm not sure that humor has to be an output of performance. I, you know, I do think humor plays a critical role. I think the kind of humor in the boat race crew would have been different from humor in, in, in a hospital, right? In a hospital, I think it's, it's, it's a coping strategy. Now, that may be true to some extent of, of sportsmen as well, but it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. But I, I can tell you that the, um, the person they selected into the 2007 crew, though he wasn't the best, was absolutely, absolutely hilarious. It's very, very funny, right? I shared a story once with an Irishman, and he said, you know what, in Ireland, we have something similar in farming. You know, this is already with racehorses. He said, racehorses are very nervous animals. And so when racehorses are nervous, do you know what we do? And I said, no. He said, well, we put a donkey with them in the fields, right? Because the donkeys are so lethargic, so laid back it kind of calms the horses down and so whether he he liked this or not it's kind of he was kind of donkey of the crew you know and he was well aware of this he would sometimes tell me before and he said you know what i don't feel like playing the clown today but it's what i've got to do you know that doesn't mean he wasn't a good rower he's a very good rower very good horseman um and the margins are very very small um but it was something he brought to the crew that just allowed him to take the edge off a little bit right didn't mean they all got along all of the time and at the surface there were still lots of tensions but he was just able to kind of nip it in the bud when it needed to and provide a, a sense of identity around the crew as well as a, a sense of lightheartedness i think that that just kind of helped him over the edge right? it's interesting because you mentioned two things there which have been the the cox who helped relieve the tension and then him who helps sort of add some humor yeah. and it seems like when you've got highly demanding environments some pressure release something that helps yeah. keep a sense of balance or proportion seems to be a valuable contribution it absolutely can be you know you know and most people will uh, will will recognize individuals like that in the workplace you know these are individuals that are not grossly incompetent you wouldn't have them around you wouldn't tolerate them but it's just something about them they just kind of know when to release the pressure, just, you know. And these people are very, very valuable to have, right? What are you going to do next? Yeah, you can help me, actually. I've got nine months next year um, to dedicate to new fieldwork projects. And I've made a long list of stuff that I would love to do, but getting access is quite difficult, right? So I'm on a lookout for a community to join, a community of people that work in an area that is maybe slightly unusual. It's certainly difficult. I don't mind where it is. Um, I don't mind at all what level of discomfort would need to be part of that. But I'd love for someone to help me out. Yeah. You know, here's a group that you could study. Why don't you come and join us? Um, That'll be fun. Yeah. So it's it's hard. It's always hard. Right. I really enjoyed Mark's interview today. Really enlightening to hear from someone who's been immersed with those teams. But as I said, he's looking to find a team to go and work with. So if you know a team or you can suggest one, please do get in touch. As we finish, Mark pressed his new book into my hands. It's out this week. Doctors at War is one of the most remarkable things I've read in absolutely ages. It gives a raw human account of life in the Camp Bastion Field Hospital. The Ministry of Defence actually tried to prevent it being published. And you can see why it shows the inside of what we only ever hear the hero stories about. Doctors at War is out this week. It's really bloody brilliant. Right, so I'm taking a week off and then it's Easter, so there'll be uh, one show in the next three weeks. 
I'm going to take the time to largely to remaster the audio and the previous episodes. But if you like any of them, I've really appreciated the sharing. If you do like any of them, please do share them. And if you've got any feedback, please let me know on that. But like I say, I've got Rory Sutherland, Jody Thompson, Tony Schwartz, Dan Pink, Martin Morales, loads and loads and loads more. And they're going to be really, really enlightening, I think. Don't be a stranger. Tweet me. Tell me what you think. Speak soon. <laughs>